cloud-based collaborative software can support active and engaged learning in both synchronous and asynchronous contexts. In this episode, we examine how a variety of Google apps can facilitate collaborative learning. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Kathleen Gradle. Kathleen is a professor in the College of Education at SUNY Fredonia. She is a recipient of a SUNY Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Teaching and a SUNY FACT2 Award for Excellence in Instruction. Welcome, Kathleen. Hi, John. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. It's good to see you again. It's good to be here. Today's teas are? I am drinking Diet Pop. That would also indicate where in the country I'm from because I just called it pop. I picked right up on that, Kathleen. And I am drinking Bring Cherry Green Tea. As we're surrounded by about a foot and a half of snow, I figured the spring cherry would be a nice mood to set here. When you said a foot, I was like, you need to dial that up a little. <laughs> I have my Scottish afternoon tea in my T-Rex mug because I need it today. And Rebecca is holding up the T-Rex mug by the microphone so you can all see it. Yeah, it was for you guys. We've invited you here to talk about some of the ways you've been using Google Apps in your classes. In a prior discussion, you recently mentioned that you were using the new Google Assignment tool, which now has LTI integration into learning management systems. Could you tell us a little bit about the Google Assignment tool? Because that was new to us. For Google Classroom aficionados, it's still fairly new, but it was a feature that the classroom people just totally glommed onto. And it gave a whole lot of functionality for distribution of assignments and built-in feedback, which was inherent to the classroom kind of stream, but added a little more LMS-ish stuff to the Google Classroom. So now it's available to the rest of us. I saw an announcement early on that it was coming, and I was like, well, this is so exciting. And I sent the request to our LMS administrator. I usually get a, oh, no, that's not going to work or won't work yet or won't work now. But because it's considered part of the education suite, the first answer was not no. So that was great because it already existed in Classroom, and Classroom was part of our education app suite. It looked like a possible. And then the second thing is, but usually these integrations don't work very smoothly. And they tried it. And I, of course, was the guinea pig. How exciting. And my first reaction was, oh, no, it's not working. And I'll explain to you that the one glitch that I see happening with it. But this is what it does. It automatically, especially in our LMSs, if you had a template of something in a Google Doc and wanted to distribute it, one copy to each recipient, each participant, each student, you could do it any number of ways, but it's not a simple click. It wouldn't work that way within most of our LMSs either. We're in Moodle, you're in Blackboard. So we'd have to think about how do we get that template out to students so they could use it and then submit it as a, quote, assignment within our LMSs. 
So when I share this with faculty, they went like this, this is like magic. And I said, yeah, it does feel like magic. So what happens is once the integration is there, depending on the name of whatever your resources or activities are in your LMS, you add it. And then in the background, you have your instance, whatever your assignment is. It could be a table that students fill out. It could be writing prompts. It could be almost anything. And as soon as you click to distribute it, it goes out to everyone who is in that section of your LMS without you doing anything. When they open it, it automatically renames it using their name, whatever name they have in your LMS, and it becomes editable by them. I don't know if you've experienced this. I certainly have. People don't rename their files, and then they forget how to share them to you when they're ready to share their wonderful work. So what happens is the student or whomever interacts with their own doc. They click to submit it in the little assignment screen, and then they're actually asked to click submit twice. As soon as they do that, they no longer have editing rights to that doc. You then automatically get it and have commenting and editing rights to the doc. They don't have to share it with you, which is usually the downside for using Google Docs. My experience with students, they forget to do that. So there's always that extra, please share it with me or whatever. So it eases the distribution part. And it's almost like playing take a turn or play tennis. So it's my serve, your serve, my serve, your serve. So as soon as I serve it to them, they then get it and I don't interact with it till they send it back to me. So it really does feel like ping pong or tennis. My husband says I'm horrible at both, but I'm pretty good at this because I get a signal that it's in there by taking a look at my assignment in the LMS. They also, as soon as I give feedback, get an email reminder and it appears in their dashboard as graded or they've gotten feedback. So that whole back and forth thing that happens with practice, it works well to gear somebody up to that level. Often that exchange sometimes takes a few extra steps. So I love that. The other piece that is really cool is it has a built-in commenting. So I can create boilerplate general kinds of feedback, click on it, and then it will paste it right into a commenting bubble in my Google Doc. So if you're like me, I have a lot of instances of where I go like this. Could you give me an example of that? Or great start. Can you finish this item? Those common ones, I can put them right into individual feedback. And I can also use it for overall feedback. And I can grade within. I can grade as well as give feedback within it. And at least in Moodle, the integration ties right into the gradebook. Now you're talking magic. <laughs> so for formative stuff, it makes all kinds of sense, as most any interaction in a Google Doc would be, because we thrive on that. However, if I want to give them 10 points for that instance and offer them opportunities to upgrade, it feels like a very natural call. There's a built-in rubric option as well, right? You're right, Rebecca. Yeah. You can either import one or you can create one right within the assignments. So I think from the instructor side or from the facilitator side, the ease of use is dramatic, especially if we want to keep students not thinking they're in a different world because they're in Google versus the LMS. So because it launches so well from the LMS and because they're actually viewing what I call their dashboard, the, the view of the activity, 
is embedded right within your LMS, it doesn't just look like an external link sitting there that they will click to go to Google Drive. So it has that look and feel of just being part of it, which I think is a piece that sometimes helps ground students in thinking, okay, you wanted me to be in Moodle, here I am. Oh no, you're sending me to Google Drive. And so keeping that focus, I think, is helpful for both of us, the instructor and the student. We are experimenting with how it would work with groups set up in the LMS and distributing to groups. One of our biology instructors is playing around with it. And one of our business people is experimenting with using one single assignment for the entire semester as a reflective journal. So what she's doing is creating what would be a template which has virtually nothing in it. Just their name and the name of the assignment is in the Google Doc. And then she's providing weekly writing prompts within the LMS. This week's reflective journal writing prompts are these three questions. So she's not putting them into the Google Doc. She's asking them to bring them over. And then they've done their first one already. They add their input. They click to submit. She gives them feedback. And then, because of this really cool feature, she's able to change the grade within the assignment itself. So initially, the first assignment were 10 points. When she goes back into grade, she can actually grade the second week and up the points to 20 and give them both feedback and their cumulative grade right there. So she has a good pedagogical reason to do this because she wants them to, like in week three, go back, okay, now look at what you were thinking in week one. Let's reflect on that and see where you stand with that same thing. So she doesn't want to have to have them go refer to different docs. And I said that iterative use of a doc is, oh, wow, super duper. It's great that this tool can help her to do that. And they're not having to submit one after another after another. If students are engaged in large writing projects, it sounds like that could be used to scaffold the project too, where instead of submitting things in stages, they're just building it as they go at each stage when they add more to the document. Right. And a lot of us do have that submit your idea, then come back and do an elevator talk, five bullet points, and then come back and do an intro piece. I think you have to be strategic about where does that sit in the LMS? So that's one thing that this business professor has thought about is rather than embedding it into one week or one module, she's taken that assignment, she's put it in our Moodle at the top in a separate section that she set up as common assignments so that they know to go there to get it, not to the particular week. So I think thinking about where it's going to fit, because it's a unique bird. I could see that working with Google Doc. Could it also work with Google Sheets or Google Slides as the base document? Yes. One of our math instructors is going to do it with the sheet. Now, when we first introduced this only about a month ago, I tried it out with my graduate class in the fall. A group of people that were, I would say, not technically very savvy and very distracted because they are graduate students and they're working and they're worried and everything else. So adopting a new tool is not their cup of tea. So I tried it with them, and they didn't miss a beat. When we introduced it to the campus, some of the questions were, what would be the right Google tool to use with this? And it was such a wonderful discussion because we really had some good decision-making about, well, what is the right thing to do? Did you really want to share that whole Google Sheet with everyone? Did you really want them to have their own? Did you really want to collect data, put it into a viewable Google Sheet rather than whatever? So teasing through some of those, what do I want to do? How do I want to do it? 
and why, with what level of access. That was a very, very healthy discussion. Ultimately, you start with the end in mind. What do you want to end with? Do I really want an individual something coming in from every student? If I don't, then maybe this is not the right choice. For example, I can still easily share templates with groups of students or with students by just posting a forced copy link and have them make a copy and do the routine kind of sharing. It really depends on how I want to use the activity. For those who are not familiar with that really powerful forced copy link, could you just explain to people how they might do that with the share link that they might otherwise have view or edit or comment access on? This is where you have to buckle your seatbelts because it's always done better visually. John said, let's see how good I am at painting a picture. So I always say, look up at your browser window when you have your Google Doc open. So look at your Omnibar and then you see that very long, 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 long series of letters and everything else that is the URL for that Google Doc. When you look at it and go all the way to the right, you'll see that the last four letters, this is where four-letter words really come in handy. The last four letters in that string are E-D-I-T, edit. So what you want to do is put your little mouse at the very, very end, up by the T, and delete those four letters and replace it with this four-letter word, copy, C-O-P-Y. So then you take that. I usually just take it, do a Control-C, copy. I open up a new tab to make sure it works. And I paste it in there. And when I do that, automatically a screen pops up that says, do you want to make a copy of this? Blah, blah, blah. Whatever the name of the doc is. Or whatever it is. Doc, slide deck, whatever. And when you click to do that, it makes an automatic copy of whatever that original looked like. And then what I usually do is I shorten it. So I take it to Bitly or one of the other shorteners. And I don't have to do that. But then it makes it a little bit easier if I'm actually going to display it. One caution to that is if you're dealing with teacher educators whose internet service is delivered through most of our regional BOCES, the BOCES do not like short URLs because they will actually ask you to plunk it into their lengthener because they want to make sure that they're not being sent to somewhere that is not as desirable. They want to be able to see where they're going. So for some of our teacher educators, we say just a reminder, you're not getting somewhere, and it says we don't like short URLs, blah, blah, blah. The forced copy link, though, can't tell you how many people have said, you have changed my life. I used that just this past Monday night in a class to give students a template for a document they were working on, and they were just kind of amazed by that. They asked how they could do that because it was a really nice technique. What you're describing, Kathleen, are so many things that I've done in my classes that the workflow would be much easier. I was just doing an assignment this semester with my students where they're doing an online digital sketchbook, really using Google Slides. And the first assignment is give me your URL. I have to make sure I have comment privileges and then you have to resubmit it if I don't. And then the next week, now we actually start the sketchbook. So each time it was an assignment and I have them just resubmit the same URL each time in the LMS. But this workflow that you're describing would be much more efficient. And I'm sure there's many other examples where that workflow would make sense as well. So that's really exciting to me. Are there some barriers that students face or that faculty face using this technique that we should be aware of? I've run into a couple of things. Number one, this does not feel like Google for people that are Google people, people that have glommed onto Google and they know the things that Google will do. This feels like it can't be working 
in the LMS, I can click and go to Google and do all those things I would normally do. So there literally is a, I'm not sure this is working. The other thing we've experienced, regardless of being hardwired or on Wi-Fi, is when you click to submit, there is a delay. When you click to access, there's a slight delay. And so when I'm presenting on this, I say something like this, remember it's magic. And sometimes it takes a second or two for the magic to work. So we're all going to cross our fingers. And by then it's loaded. I think it is just the crossover between the LMS and Google world that's happening and all the scripting behind it. So that's the one piece because with some of our click happy people, it may not feel as fluent as they want it to be. Other thing we're running into is students are reporting that they can't see where to click to submit. So right now, there are very few examples of Google assignments, the standalone version, out there. As far as demo videos, most of them are how this works in Google Classroom. So if you're trying to use a ready-made demo video rather than creating your own, there are not many instances of it. I think the problem is that people don't have their viewing window wide enough or deep enough, and they're just missing the bottom of the screen, and they're looking for a place to submit. It uses an iconic blue button to submit, but then it also resorts, and we've all seen this in Google, that little blue link button, and you have to click twice the blue button and then the blue link. So I think those are things that probably they'll fix as time goes on. I think they're getting used to this not living in classroom because that doesn't exist in classroom. So those are the two things that we've seen so far. It sounds like some of the same problems that students may already face using an LMS across screen sizes because they're not fully responsive in terms of design and working in different browser window sizes. That's a problem that I think students face regularly on different screen sizes with our LMSs. I face it as an instructor in Blackboard all the time where I have multiple screens open. So I have one that I'm grading kind of narrow and I also can't find the submit button because I have to scroll to get to it. Now, I don't think those are horrible things to deal with. And I also think those are good things for users to learn because this is not the only time they're going to run into it, as you point out. So I don't mind getting through those hurdles. The other hurdle is this. I don't know about your campus, but ours, even though we've been a Google campus since way back when, getting help from our ITS folks, as wonderful as they are, getting help on the Google side, especially on something as new as this tool, not there. So the students end up asking the instructor, which I think is great because our early adopters are hitting on it, are playing with it, whatever. But a more naive instructor may assume that students can get the help that they need, not just about this app, but plenty of the Google app. There's help at Google, but because it's pretty new, not the depth and breadth of help that would exist, will exist probably in just three months from now. Several years back, I think it was about six or seven years ago, I was teaching a collaborative course with someone in Mexico where we had students from Oswego working with students from Mexico. And they were collaborating by using shared Google documents. And one of the things that the students universally at the end of the course said is that one thing I'm taking away from this is how easy it is to work with other people, either synchronously or asynchronously, when you have these shared documents. Could you talk a little bit about some of the ways in which Google facilitates collaborative work? First of all, I have to admit, I never use the Google search tool. DuckDuck is my favorite because I don't have to worry about ads being generated based on what I've searched for. So I love everything else about Google, though, and that's the primary thing, which is 
ease of collaboration, whether it is a small group, a larger group, or just the student and me. I'll give you a couple of examples. So with our freshmen, I was involved in the relaunch of our freshman seminar until we grew it enough so that it would be embedded in all the majors. And most of the students came in and said, yay, we're in Google. And I think they really thought the search engine. And some of them had used Google Docs before, but primarily, for example, do their senior paper. So they could go back. It was automatically saved. They knew those features. They didn't know a lot of the other features, including looking at feedback, using the feedback, and making changes in their work, whether the feedback came from a friend, someone in a study group, or their instructor. So what I often try to do is tease students into the value of using that input within slides or within a Google Doc for the greater good, for either the good of the group or the good of their own selves or to earn the grade if they want. So from an academic perspective, having something where you get a chance to basically brainstorm live with other people doing something is very cool within the safety of a zone. So I was never a basketball player. I was always a manager. The joy of zone defense is that we have a canvas and we have a canvas that's going to automatically capture all of the things that we think about. When you think about Google that way, for me, it opens up the world beyond what did we just say in this last two little seconds that just evaporated into thin air. So I can capture a whole lot of things in a Google something that is our joint work, including chat, including commenting, including live edit, if that makes sense, and if I've given people permission to do it. So I usually started with the freshmen using Google Slides because the zone is very limited. Everybody gets a slide or three slides, but they're theirs until we say, okay, now we want you to go in and look at the next person's, which is the next slide, and use a commenting tool to plus them or to ask them where they got that image or whatever. So teaching them some reasonable conventions around academic collaboration and sharing made so much sense within the Google environment because it was kind of controlled and it was within a zone. And the way that we did that is by having them build their own memes. And that's a feature that I wanted to talk with you about as well. Because Google has changed their mindset about how the Explore tool, which is a built-in find it and use it kind of research tool within Google, when I search for an image within a Google slide, right within the slide, and I bring it into the slide, my choices of images will only be Creative Commons licensed images images that are licensed for some level of reuse. For me, this is a way to ease in, to scaffold students into some very complex digital literacy concerns that I want them to get acquainted with, but not become masterful at initially. So I said, so freshman year, we need to build some memes for next year's class. How do you survive freshman year? What's a first year student gonna do? Well, the first thing they did, 99% of them was leave the slide deck, go out to the big world of Google search, bring in images of athletes that were licensed, of the minions, which are licensed, of Disney, which are licensed, and they put them in there. And I thought, this is exactly what I wanted to happen. They didn't follow directions. That was okay. And so the prompt for their peers was to go in to their friend's slide and ask them, 
where did you get this image? And can you make sure you put the link to it in the speaker note underneath the canvas of the slide? And then we darkened our screens and we talked about it. I said, where did everybody find it? Well, they Googled, you know, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Well, let's pull up some of them. So give me one. And I would say, oh, my. quick, close the door because the Disney cops may come and get us. What are we going to do with this one? Mickey Mouse. Minnie Mouse. I love them to death. These are licensed images. You have to pay to use them. All right, give me another one. I did a few together, and then I said, now let's go back to the drawing board and take a look at what you've done and talk to each other. Where did you get them? Now let's try another one. So let's go in, insert the image from within the slide deck. Now go to your friend. Show them what you did. Go to the image itself, and let's take a look at the license. Now, most of my students were like this, why are you doing this to us initially? Three weeks later, we had some new people join our class. And I said, the meme thing, can you help our new students understand how you got that license and the confidence that the Disney cops or the whatever cops aren't going to come and get you and we are being good digital citizens? And we did it by putting our heads together, collaborating. They were like this, you won't believe what we did. They explained it. Now, the first hit on it was very, very, very problematic because they had always done that. They had always just searched in Google. So I was trying to capitalize on the Google tools, which is feedback within the slide deck, and also ways to then go back and use that feedback and say, oh, I did it. Now I can resolve it. That practice of using the feedback to inform your practice and then get rid of the prompt, but I know I can open it up again. So for me, that's a learning process. So that's an example of using the slides where the canvas is limited, but the potential is great. So it doesn't have to be a picture. And lots of times I ask students to build things using, for example, Google Slides to create content that the course then uses. So they end up with a joint product that they've each contributed to, but they each get authorship because I make sure that they put their names. And then I will often ask, let's look at the licenses. Which license do you want to pick for our product? Do you want to pick one that people can use this and change it? Use it, just period. Use it and make money off of it. Oh, no, they shouldn't make money off of it. But that kind of process where they build together and then we use it for a purpose is so easy with some of the Google tools. I love that you've described this iterative process of learning how to give and receive feedback and use the different collaborative tools in Google because I think we tend to just assume that our colleagues and our students know how to collaborate with us in these digital environments, but we often need to introduce how and that there are different ways. You can use the suggest mode, you can use the comment tool, you can type right in. So I love that you have such clear boundaries and scaffold them through that process. I've found the same thing to be really important in the work that I've done with my students. And copyright's so important in the design world and what I'm doing. So we do some very similar kinds of exercises thinking about this copyright piece of it too. And the live chat piece can be very helpful. A lot of students will say, I don't really want to come to your office hours, but can you visit me in my dock? Can you take a look at my dock? And I'll say, absolutely. Want to join me there during office hours? Well, they're not attending office hours. They're in their dock. So we go in and I will do commenting for a different purpose, but I'll open up the chat stream, which they're, of course, way familiar with. I'm almost 70, but they're totally into chat not necessarily with their instructor. So I've had some interesting conversations within docs and within slide decks. 
sometimes I'll be in there and I'll be chatting and somebody will say, can you believe all the hard work we have to do in this class? Another student will say, hey, Gradle's here. (laughs) It's kind of interesting to use the things for the purpose that you want them to be used at that time. One of the things I've been doing with group work in synchronous classes is I've been sending them to breakout rooms and creating a Google slide deck and assigning them to create something, often something different on each slide for each group. But the nice thing about it is while they're in the breakout rooms, I can have the slides open with a panel on the side and I can see which groups are working and which groups aren't. And then I can choose to go visit them just to check to see how it's going. And sometimes you're talking about something entirely different. Sometimes you're actively discussing it and just haven't put anything down yet. But it's a nice way of monitoring what's happening in the breakout rooms in real time, especially for things that might take a little bit longer. And that's another really nice feature about doing this in a synchronous online class. That's a really good example. And I bet, John, you do this before you start something as serious as that, is make sure that you introduce that practice in a lesser valence activity. I find that the middle school person in all of us comes out when we're first acquainted with the thing. Like, I'm going to go in and change the font to all pink on your slide and see what you do. So I've seen a lot of that. So that zone defense conventions or whatever is important to get them underway with it. I think your example is a great one. Starting things out synchronously and then building on it asynchronously where you can actually capitalize on individual contributions as well as group contributions is an important thing for them to learn using the tools. So respecting who's done what, when, where that thing is in the learning curve and where my contribution is and taking ownership of making it the best it can be, taking feedback to fix it or whatever. So I think that is a great example. I think one of the things related to that, Kathleen, that I've shared with students that they've been amazed by is that you can see the history of a document. They just have no idea. How did you magically know that I was the one that did X? Right. (laughs) So, you know, you can capitalize on the magic of that initially to just know who's doing what, but just so that they can see, especially if they're collaborating in a small group, they can see what's happened since last time they were in the document can be really helpful. We have in education, we have a literacy technology class, which is kind of laughable because That should be embedded in every class, but I teach it. They will be in small groups to do certain products. And I point out the ways that I will know and they will know how they have met the accountabilities by both the setup of the Google Doc, where I ask people to do a visible initial for some of their contributions, and I show them the revision history. And I also ask them to do constructive peer reviews of different sections. So we have the comment stream working. And so all those things, when you think about it, can fit so well into that learning cycle that we often have difficulty capturing when we're not in a tool like Google Doc. So all of those things, I think it's so important for them to learn that there are things that are going to help them work with other people, be responsible, and end up with a product that they can share as theirs and or others, and then correctly attribute the work. So I think it's that got to do it 21 times until you get kind of good at it. So we have a lot of opportunity in a regular length semester to do that using various tools. Other thing that happens with at least my students is they think it is just tool specific. And that is what is a really nice feature of a lot of our Google stuff is the actions are very similar across the different things. So across sheets, across slides, across docs, 
the basic actions, commenting, making copies of, and finding out who did what, those are all the same kinds of things, even though they look different. In my classes this semester, and I did this last semester too, I invited students to use the comment tool on my syllabus, which I provided as a Google Doc. And that was really interesting. And I encouraged them to ask questions about things on the syllabus or indicate things that they were excited about. And there was a healthy mix of both. I told them that they had to make a comment. So it was a healthy mix of students making positive comments about things they were excited about, as well as asking rich questions by requiring them to make a comment of some sort. If they didn't have a question, they had to provide something. And what's been really interesting is that they seem to think that that's still an open invitation, which is great. I'm still engaging. I get the notifications. Little questions come up about assignments as things become more relevant to them as the semester has been going on, which has been really interesting to continuing to have a conversation about the course. But that was one way that I introduced commenting as a way of using this collaborative environment from day one. It's worked really well. And it also showed the value of joint thinking around something that kind of looked like a finished product because our syllabi do look pretty finished. I think that piece, too, is kind of underneath the surface and showed how brave you were, too, Rebecca. (laughs) Well, I also know that since the pandemic, even more aware of how quickly things can shift and change. But in the kinds of classes that I teach, I tend to be really responsive to where students are at. And so what's on the schedule may very well change. And so I just keep it up to date. And I use the syllabus as the place to do that. So everyone has a complete copy of what we're doing. So it is something that's regularly revised, (laughs) at least parts of it. I know a number of our faculty have moved to a liquid syllabus approach where they're creating a website and letting students know that it will be revised based on circumstances and based on how things are going, where they're asking students regularly for feedback. And certainly putting it in a Google Doc is a good way of doing that. My advanced students this semester, through our brainstorm process, decided they were all going to work together on a project. And so that really kind of threw some things in my syllabus out the window because the structure I had in place wasn't going to work for that. I was open to their idea. So now we've had to go in and edit and adjust as a result of their proposal. But I think it'll be a really exciting opportunity for those students. One group of honors students a couple of years ago, and our honors program is cross-year. So I had freshmen all the way to seniors, and I asked them to construct the syllabus. And there were 15 students in the class, 15, 17, something like that. And I just set them at it because we were going to use a project-based learning approach anyhow in the course. And I wanted an assessment of what our baseline was. Thank goodness for Google Docs. However, what they did is they created their own, they divided into little groups on their own, then they created separate Google Docs, and then had this problem of how do we merge them. And I was very, very happy to see them using Google Docs in their small groups so efficiently, and it gave great context as we got to the point of how do we make this into one, not only by building consensus, but also creating a joint product that now has got five arms of the octopus. How do we do that? So it was perfect. It was a whole course on digital literacy and digital growth. So it was a perfect baseline. And we couldn't have done it without Google. There's one other kind of hint or maybe pandemic smart suggestion related to Google. And I'm not sure that this is possible on all campuses. I know it's possible within your own private instance of Google is turning offline mode on. Notice I said that slowly so I didn't trip over all the words. Having the ability to work on a doc that sits on my stream on my home computer 
and then sync back to Drive as soon as I log back on, I have found to be a very powerful solution given just people's reality of being able to access and fight for bandwidth at home and wherever they are. Our campus took a long time to turn that on. I actually don't know if it's available here because I have it turned on on my personal account and I'm prevented from doing it on the other. I think it may be turned off at our campus. I'm not positive. I have it turned on on my app, but I don't know if that's different for my campus account. Before we started the actual podcast, we were talking about some of the challenges with respect to Google on our higher ed campuses. And that would be one is taking a feature that has a whole lot of potential functionality and convincing whoever it is you need to convince on your campus that that needs to be toggled on and the rationale for it. I think it took a very, very long time. And then when they turned it on, they didn't tell anyone. Well, the big rationale there is the word equity. Yeah. And then thankfully, they had done it before the pandemic hit. And the reason I'm saying thankfully is because there was a sufficient we call it herd mentality, not herd immunity, herd mentality so that people could help each other in the absence of direct support from an already overstretched IT department. So the more we have little worker bees around able to do things and help each other, I think the better off we are. So there were enough people that had turned certain things on, not turned other things on. And their fear, rightly so, is that the floodgates would open and the individual user wouldn't know to not do that and then have everything on their local drive rather than up in Google. So that's a piece, though, that I have found to be very helpful, especially when I get students in our area. Well, you're remote, too. You have a lot of rural areas. We have folks that literally have very limited, stable internet access. So let's recognize that. And then it doesn't mean that you can't still work. You can't do certain things, but you can resync when you get back on. And whether that's enabled on your campus or not, you do have that option with mobile devices. And many of our students are working with mobile devices. I used to use that when I was traveling and I might not have network access if I was on a plane or if I was on a train or just in a place where there was a dead zone. And it's really convenient. We've talked a little bit about using Google Slides and Google Docs, but one tool that both Rebecca and I use quite a bit is Google Forms. One of the nice things I like about Forms is when you're having students submit a variety of things, they automatically get stored in a folder and you can share the spreadsheet created back with the whole class so they all have access to the work of the rest of the class in a really convenient format without editing ability. Could you talk a little bit about some of the ways in which Google Forms might be used effectively? Well, I like your idea especially when people are doing independent or small group projects that are housed in Google. Actually, they could be housed anywhere. Let's pretend they were doing Padlets or anything else that generated a URL. Just by collecting those through a Google form, the work is done for you. It's done for them as soon as they submit. It's done for you. And then you have your master spreadsheet, which you can then easily adapt. So you can either share the whole thing with them to view or filter certain data out of the spreadsheet or make instances of it so that different groups can use different things. Again, and in mind, what do you want to end up with and what level of access do you want the students to have? So if anyone wants to collect joint data on anything, don't share the spreadsheet with more than two people that you trust. Specifically, the way I used it was I have students doing a podcast project and they submit their audio file, they submit a transcript, they submit an abstract. And also, they answer a question about whether they want it posted publicly or not. 
So all the podcasts are shared within the class, but only some of them make it out into the rest of the world. And it's their choice. And sometimes students will have multiple submissions because they may have a few drafts with feedback. And I'll just delete any first drafts of that and then make a copy of the spreadsheet and share that with the whole class, where that way they can get all that information from all the students, either on individual pages or in just the spreadsheet itself. Right. So the more complex the contribution, the more forms is a tool of choice. I also use it as a hook. So we think of forms as a survey tool. It actually has a quiz function built into it now. Originally, it didn't. On a broader scale, though, just finding out what people know before they step into new content can help them get grounded. Oh, I'm not the only one who does or doesn't know this stuff or has done this stuff before. So it can ground them most essentially for us as instructors. It can drive what we end up doing the next class or for the final assignment or whatever. And I also think that we need lots of opportunities for students to take a look at what are the data telling us, regardless of whatever topic it is. So I will often create a Google form where they, at the beginning of a synchronous class or even before coming to class or in an online class or a remote class, that may tease into what's your experience with this and what's your favorite thing or whatever the thing is. And I usually start with easy things like, what's your favorite app and why? Because they always want to tell. And then it's the data are all collected automatically. And in Google Forms, I don't even have to go to the spreadsheet. The beautiful charts are automatically created. So I can actually, without anything, just click, show them, or I can share it so they can see, especially if I have made sure to not ask for students' names. And we can use that as a pivot to what we're going to do next. So that piece in that learning cycle before, during, after. It's perfect for things like muddiest points. You're like, what was the thing that was most confusing about this class? Instead of having just a conversation, even though we may have a conversation, having something visual that people can look at and say, wow, most people said the most confusing thing for my directions. Let me work on that. What would have helped? I think there's also this thing of we're asking people to put skin in the game. And that's part of my whole mindset. I want you to put skin in the game during. I will too. I'm also going to listen to you. And here's an example of how I'm going to do it. So Forms has been my favorite tool for that purpose. I'm also showing them they can use it in different ways, not just as a quiz, not just as a collector, but also as a way to gather information and then use the information for certain things. Do I have students create quizzes using Google Forms? Yes, I do. If they're going to build content, They're going to want to know what their content users think of it or what they learned from it. So instead of going to an external tool, I will usually drive them right back to Google to do it. Google Forms is one of my very go-tos. And most students have used it. I've used it a lot for self-assessment as well for students. There's a lot of great opportunity for scales and things like that as they're looking at their own work or in my advanced classes where we run more like a design studio, I have them do like little performance reviews at different points of the semester to kind of mimic what the professional world might be like. And that's worked really well. It gives me a great way of seeing where everybody's at all at once. In a quick glance, I can have one-on-one meetings with students. They also have like a little checklist of things to be paying attention to. So it works on a lot of different levels. So I found that to be really particularly useful. We use it for accessibility purposes for the work that our students design with a little checklist and going through and checking each thing and marking whether or not it passes certain tests as a self-check before they submit their work. That's very nice. For my online classes, 
I use a holistic rubric and I just use a scale function in Google Forms. That is the last thing they do at the end of the module. They self-assess on our five criteria that I use across every single module. And I ask them to point out the things that they think they really did well on, the things that they ran into as problems and how they tried to address those problems. Then I use that information when I give them feedback. I also want them to get in that process like you. Self-reflection, we're going to live and die by it as we go forward. So again, that practice, and you're right, forms is the way to do it. And you mentioned the muddiest point. I often will use that generally in some sort of an exit ticket at the end of a class. But the nice thing about using that is if you teach a large class, as I used to a decade or so ago before the pandemic began, where I didn't want to get students turning in three or 400 sheets of paper for me to scan through, you can just put up the form with a QR code on the screen or a bit.ly, a short URL that they could type in. They can do it right from their mobile device, and it just takes a couple minutes. And you can quickly scan through the spreadsheet just to see what sort of patterns there are. And you can then address that the next time the class meets. And it allows you to scale that technique to a larger level without putting a lot more work on yourself or on the students. Thanks for mentioning QR codes. The first time that I put a QR code on a slide deck for my freshman students, they didn't know. And I said, you have seen these on bananas and ketchup bottles and other stuff like that and on billboards and whatever. But we never saw it on anything for school. And all they wanted to do was get their phone out. And here's a slide deck in front of them. But I loved it because as soon as it's in their device, they have it. So I usually, even though that URL is there, it was way cooler to just scan the code. And sometimes I would go to slide two and they wouldn't see the QR code. We didn't get the code. Okay. Now this happens to also be in our LMS. And I loved it because if they're flipping through that slide deck while we're using it in class, if I told you to do it, you wouldn't. Thank you for doing it. <laughs> the lore of the QR code, right? Do you have any other Google favorites that you want to share before we wrap up today? Just a couple of teasers. People don't think about these, but some students say to me, the only way I learn well is by YouTube. Well, thank you. I'm on YouTube. So here we go. Ha ha ha. And you're going to be on YouTube in this class too. One of the things that I encourage students to do is build their own playlists of things. And lots of times that feature they use all the time, but they don't use it for their academic work. So I actually ask them to build playlists about certain things for each other to use. Online course survival, your best way to get through a tough book. What are your best study skills? And then in content areas, when they're doing specific things related to their major, I ask them to find, rate, and vet pre-existing videos and put them in the playlist and then do an infomercial that tells people why this list of videos makes sense. So I ask them to use pre-existing content, but get better at using it and vetting it against things like duration and captioning and transcripts that don't have a lot of errors and then stuff like that. So trying to get them to use the tool that they say they like an awful lot. I use playlists as well. And of course, I have playlists that are built into the courses. What I really want them to do, though, is build their own because that shows that they're actually using stuff that they would normally use anyhow, but putting it into more of a packaged or purposeful use. And then share. Share with each other. It's another collaboration. I think the other couple of things that are underused, alerts, Google Scholar alerts and alerts. When at the beginning of a semester, if I know that they're going to have a long-term project, let's generate keywords. 
right off the bat. I want you to read a couple things, generate some keywords, and I want you to create a Google Scholar alert for yourself for these things. If you do it today, I promise you, unless it's something really obscure, you will get some things coming to your email box that will help you as you move ahead. Again, it's not to become a master at it. They're going to need to do that over time in order to be effective. But I think it's way different than kind of the scatter approach to let me search in Google and look at the, I'm like, I know you're only going to look at the first five things anyhow. So at least now you're going to get some regular stuff in that are key things that are key to your interests or your priorities. I also have used and asked students to use the custom Google search engine. Most students do not understand that that little search bar everywhere is a custom Google search tool. So when they are creating content, I ask them to create often, not often in a class, but at least in every course. As they share content, I ask them to create a custom Google search tool for their users. And they're in awe that they've created their own little search bar. And it has in it only the things that they put into it. And I use this as an example of how they need to be very careful because think about the very few things that you're allowing people to search and get results from in your custom Google search. Does that say anything to you about what happens when you use Google? What's happening to what's not being exposed to you? What is happening to what's being exposed to you? This constant reminder about data and tools, data and tools. And for our elementary teachers in particular who are working on differentiating content for students with very differing ability and skill levels, that's been a really functional thing. So I ask them to do a lot of background work to do good selection of resources. And then when they tailor the stuff for their students, for example, using the custom Google search engine helps them kind of put a icing on top of the cupcake. So that's been kind of an interesting I think the other piece is Google Maps and Google are underutilized. And on our campus block, despite all kinds of reminders that we do have several GIS courses and we have other courses that would use Google Earth and Google Maps within our Fredonia identity, if we had those available. So people that are committed to using those tools have to go back to their personal, which is not what our campuses want to encourage. So I think that we have a long way to go in the Google world to advocate for tools that are functional and explain that functionality to the people that are making decisions. One other tool that I know we've talked about before that you've used is Google Jamboard. Could you talk a little bit about how you've used that? I'm going to say 10 years ago, I scrambled around. I was like, where can I find a flexible, viable online whiteboard that doesn't make me sign in and pay at least something or that will allow lots of users or that has a limited number of tools so the learning curve is short. And now we have it. So Google Jamboard, not the one you pay $5,000 for that sits in a room. Not that Jamboard, but the Google Doc version basically is a wonderful addition to the suite. So Jamboard is a Google Doc that facilitates typical online whiteboard functions. But otherwise, pretty much acts like a Google Doc. I can share it. I can unshare it. I can share it to individual or groups of users. I can capitalize on the functionality of the device because of the app that works on that device. So the mobile app of Jamboard is slightly different and really cool than the desktop version. 
or the one that would run on your computer. Similarly, on Chromebook, there's a slight difference because it's paying attention to the device that it's on. So, for example, writing is often difficult depending on the type of mouse you have and if you don't have a stylus. So on the mobile version, there's an option to choose to convert your scribbles to text and it will automatically convert your entry to a readable text version. So there's some really nice device-specific nuances that you don't often see with a tool like this. So what's also neat, easy to duplicate, easy to export, and for people that really want to have custom, not just the blank whiteboard, you can either use templates that are readily available as backgrounds, or you can easily create your own background, bring it in, and then that serves as the frame for people to contribute to. Otherwise, it works pretty much like any kind of regular online whiteboard. There's sticky notes, there's doodling tools, there's writing tools. Not a lot of colors, but enough to play with. John, you mentioned breakout rooms. Perfect solution for some of our breakout rooms for our synchronous meetings. Because you can easily click to duplicate right within that one Jamboard. If you have five breakout rooms, doop, 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 doop. And then you say, you're in Jamboard 1, you're in Jamboard 2, Breakout Room 3 has Jamboard 3, and everyone has access to them. You can then click to turn off editing and then use it as a piece where people then talk about, comment on. They can't use a commenting function per se, but you can build it into the instructional flow. So it can be as great as brainstorming, or it can be as structured as the old four corners activity that we do in cooperative learning, like go to corner one if you are a high-end user, go to corner four if this is a brand new thing to you. So you can do that with sticky notes and other things in a structured kind of way, or you can have people generate concept maps or move things around or whatever. So the, the range of generation to addition, like generating from scratch or adding to or subtracting from is very easily done and without a lot of time commitment on your part. I encourage people to try it. Don't overuse it. Just like any tool, like, oh no, we have to get creative here. We don't want that kind of a response, right? Again, though, a great way to capture key ideas, then that URL is shareable in any way. Also, you can capture everything, bring it down as a image file or as a PDF and use it in other ways. So I've used, for example, a Jamboard, I call it a stream, but a Jamboard frame and started one on one instance, one meeting, and then we can come back to it on the second meeting, see where we were in our thinking, for example, at the end of the last meeting, somebody's points or whatever. I actually use that four corners thing a lot in Jamboard. Use that as a reference point as we move into the next class activity or the next meeting I've done it with faculty and faculty development. They think it's really cool and they want to play an awful lot, which I don't mind because it is pretty engaging and another way to collaborate. Very different than the typical text kind of contribution, which is a good way to trigger people whose brains don't quite work in a text linear fashion. Well, thanks so much for so many great ideas and a wide range of thinking about Google in the classroom in a way that maybe folks haven't thought of before. We always wrap up by asking, what's next? What's next is trying to figure out what will happen to changing grades in a Google assignment in the LMS gradebook. We're experimenting with that as far as 
the people that want to use a single thing and change the grade base, that's a piece that we're working on. And the other thing, for me at least, what next is following up with people that are doing some really great fun things with Jamboard and trying to get a kind of informal community of learners around using that tool because we have everything from biology to business <laughs> playing with it. I think those examples are going to really be important to hook other people in the disciplines that aren't quite so much of early adopters. So for me, those are the two next steps. Well, thank you. I've learned a lot from you over the years with all the workshops you've done at the SUNY Conference on Instruction and Technology and just from other conversations and working with you on various committees and things. Thank you. Both of you are excellent at this and great ideas. Nice to talk. Thanks for coming. We appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.